pleasure to welcome back. He's been with us before uh, from time to time over the years. I first met him uh, when I was a Cub reporter on the radio side, and he was the grizzled old veteran on the Packer beat. <laughs> now I'm the grizzled old veteran on the Packer beat, and he's just a grizzled old veteran team historian. Uh, but uh, one of my dearest friends that I've known a long, long time since uh, we started covering the Pack in the late 70s. Now the team historian for the Packers, and he can finally relax just a little bit because this baby is finally wrapped in cellophane. The greatest story in sports. I can't wait to dig through it. Cliff Crystal, Packer team historian, our guest tonight from the Narrow Bridge Brew House. Hello, Clifford. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Congrats on getting it done. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Finally. We've been talking about this for years. Yeah, it was uh, supposed to be out in uh, 2019, maybe even 2018. So we're a little late. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Not much has happened in the last couple of years, that's for sure. Uh, you really had this project in mind long before you became involved with the Packers as team historian, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, the last, um, oh, probably last 10 years, I was at the Journal Sentinel. I did a lot of historical pieces, including some on... Lambo and started the Packers, so I, that's when I really got intrigued by, about the subject and uh, thought, well, that'd be a good retirement project, uh, <laughs> right? A definitive history. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, um, you realized that this wasn't going to be just. As I think I saw, I heard you put it. Yeah, David Marin has put 500 pages on just Lombardi, and you knew this was going to be a little more involved than that. Yeah. It, it, Originally, we were talking three to four hundred pages, but it is really—it's just a phenomenal story. There's so many side angles to it, and so many interesting uh, stories behind how they and why they survived, and not only survived, but were the most successful franchise in the NFL, um, and especially the fans' role. The, and the connection between the city and the team uh, to get the, you know, Curly Lambeau and gone Hollywood with his three marriages. And he actually had a son that nobody knows about that I managed to hook up with. Really? An interview that was named Daryl Lewis Lambeau II, but changed his name when he was uh, a young boy and then uh, officially a little later on because... Uh, he was embarrassed by it. He didn't want to be a Lambo. No, not partly because of how he had treated his mother, right. who had been a Miss California. Uh, Curly met her on the trip over to sounds Hawaii. Like a, sounds like a doting mother. <laughs> Curly met her on the uh, trip over to Hawaii in 1932. All right. And then the third marriage uh, to a woman who had been married to a Hollywood producer and the guy who built the railroad, son of the guy that built the railroads to the west, to, uh, uh, I think she was a gold digger. But, <laughs> but in Lambo's case, he might have gotten the best of it. And that, too, was just a bizarre marriage and part of, you know, the caused the split, partly caused the split in 49-50 because he was never in Green Bay during the offseason. As soon as the season ended... He got out of town and wouldn't come back till July. That was basically. the last couple of years. We're talking, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, mid forties yeah. on. Yeah, he would. He so, and uh, 
just so many periods like that. The prohibition period. I, I really truly believe that the Packers would not have survived if not for prohibition? Green Bay. Yeah, this was no. One of the misconceptions is that how well how well the Packers drew in the early years. I mean, the East-West football game was bigger in Green Bay in the 20s than the Bear-Packer game. Uh, and they did not draw that well. A lot of games, they'd draw 1,000 people, 2,000. Teams would leave here with a minimum gate. Uh, and others, Dan Daly and uh, O'Donnell, forget his first name, wrote a book about the history of the NFL and this is where I first picked up on it, how Green Bay was the favorite stop in the league for teams in the 1920s. And then when I started to research, it, it was obvious. They, teams would come in here and they'd stay a week, <laughs> stay 10 days. And, and the reason was Green Bay never shut down for prohibition. The bars were open. Uh, and they had a thriving red... Yeah, well, that's a standing ovation for that. That'll wait, Green Bay. Yeah. you got to stand for something. And, uh, <laughs> and a thriving uh, red light district over in the north side. I found a couple of uh, people who grew up in that neighborhood on Reber Street. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then at the end, when Curly tried to take the team private, again, that was a story I just knew a little bit about, but he hooked up with Vic McCormick, who was worth uh, a lot I think of money? It was, yeah, roughly sixteen he may million. May have been the richest. Yeah, he Green Bay somehow, resident in his day. somehow he inherited. He was the attorney and nephew of John Minahan, who was uh, one of the early doctors in Green Bay. Uh, was the guy who turned St. Vincent Hospital into the uh, huge hospital it has become. Uh, after, you know, just I think it was based in a small home in the right. beginning. And so Curly somehow ended up with his estate, and he had invested heavily in Holberg paper, which became Charmin paper. And uh, so he had about $16 million and was in position to turn the team private in 1950. And then they ended up, uh, big that was the big battle with some of the old... Uh, Die Hard, some of the members of the older members of the Hungry Five and George Calhoun. Right. And so they saved the franchise as a publicly or community owned team. But had they not, Vic McCormick then in the 60s uh, hooked up, <laughs> <laughs> pun intended, maybe no pun intended, with a woman on a uh, trip around the Great Lakes with one of his uh, luxury yachts and uh, she ended up contacting him after he returned. They got married. He agreed to a prenup in uh, Kiwani County the night before the wedding. And soon after, that $16 million had dwindled to about, he became ill. So she oversaw the estate. And that $16 million turned into about 500000 <laughs> almost overnight. So if she would have owned, the, if Vic would have owned the team, in a partnership with Lambo, who knows what would have happened at that uh, point. That was crazy, crazy. I, you know, the one thing that I – these stories are fantastic. I just love – I could do this all night, and we've done this plenty of nights in great establishments around the country over the years, including this one. But the reason you wanted to get into such detail and such 
I don't want to say minutia, but for lack of a better term, about these stories uh, so important to the just fabric of this organization, is that I've got a collection of Packer books, probably 60 strong, and you've described most of these historical recollections as a muddled mess. Yeah. And and fiction, truly. Really. Um, and it, I mean, for example, Arch Ward in forty, uh, is it forty six? Wrote the first book on the history of the Packers, and Arch Ward was one of the most famous sports writers, editors in the history of the country. He worked for the Chicago Tribune. He was a good friend of Curley's, and I consider that book a classic. But he also believed a lot of Lambo stories, and as Lee Remmel told me on many occasions. Uh, and uh, as well as a lot of Lambo's players, I probably interviewed close to 25, uh, a number of them for maybe up to an hour or more, that he was a congenital liar. That basically, Lee told me he lied about everything. He never opened his mouth without lying. And in a way, that benefited the Packers in the 20s and 30s because they got all this publicity in New York and Chicago on those trips. That's what in the in 1928-29, right at the start of when they won their the first, first three, three titles, they became the biggest draw in the NFL. So average attendance is not even 12,000 in the league, and the Packers are drawing 30,000 plus in Chicago and New York. They're putting money in the Mars pockets, they're putting money in the Hallis's pockets, and um, so that's why those owners looked out for him and, and wanted to preserve so the Green would, Bay so franchise. Would, so would Curley just embellish anything and everything to those writers in New York and Chicago just to kind of build up maybe the Packer image or, I don't want to say legacy because they're only 10 years old at that time, but... Well, I think that's one of the reasons it's... It, it, it's kind of easy to get at the truth because I don't think Curley lied much, or at least they knew George Calhoun, John Walter, uh, Art, especially Lee never, Lee just did sidebars with Curley. But I don't, either they didn't knew that Curley was lying and didn't write the stories in a lot of cases, or uh, he did not lie to them. Um, for example, the whole story about Don Hudson signing two contracts. John Walter taught, wrote a column at that time about how it was Bill Lee, the tackle at Alabama, who signed the two contracts, not Hudson. And so when Curley, though, decided five years after Hudson retired that he would tell the story about Hudson rather than Bill Lee, because obviously a better story if he yeah, tells it true. in reference yeah. to Don Hudson. Hut, yeah, Hudson was a little better player than Bill Lee, for sure. Matt? Cliff, was part of your research just like going to the library, looking at old newspaper articles and reading those from over the years? Um, yeah, it, basically everything, most of what I did was on microfilm. Okay. So I read the Green Bay Press-Gazette, actually number of editions before 1919, but starting on August or January 1, 1919, into the 60s when I grew up here and started um, you know, reading it as a teenager, 
that um, I went page by page, every page of the Press Gazette for 40 years. And one of the stories I had done in Milwaukee allowed me to go through the Journal and the Sentinel uh, every day from 1919 into the 1950s. Did they cover the team as vigorously then? Uh, soon after, even when they had a team in Milwaukee, because the Packers drew better and were a better story. They got yeah. a fair amount of coverage, and then when the Milwaukee team folded in the mid-20s, they got, they got a lot more. Yeah, all right. We'll did, get, did you invest a small fortune into microfilm? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of quarters. A lot um, of quarters. But I also, the library was thrilled to see you every day. But I also started interviewing people. Um, and I would guess, I've never counted them, but probably, I, I think it was 25, 30 Lambo players, uh, probably 30 to 50 players from the 50s, mm. and then a number of players, good share of the Lombardi Packers, um, and then not so much players after because I had covered the team those years. Yeah, all right. Hey, we've got to take a break, but when we come back, more tales of the pack. From the guy who knows it better than anybody, Cliff Crystal, Packer team historian, our guest, will return to the Darrell Bridge Brew House right after this. Welcome back. This is the fifth quarter, live from the Narrow Bridge Brew House. Once again, your hosts, Mark Daniels and Matt Z. A trip down memory lane, and we're not just talking since they lost to the Saints in Jacksonville. Cliff Crystal, our guest tonight, the Packers team historian, longtime writer for the Press Gazette, Journal Sentinel. Uh, we were on the beat together from my first year was 79. So when did you give it up on the paper side? Milwaukee's last uh, few days? What a long time. A- yeah. 88. Yeah, okay. Actually, yeah, 88. Okay. So mm-hmm. at least I got a decade out of you in, a, in the bars around the <laughs> NFL. That was for sure. Anyway, uh, we're talking about, you know, digging up all of the anecdotal evidence about this Packer team. Was it really covered in as much detail Back then, as it is now, where ev- I mean, good Lord, I don't know if there's an instruction over there at the Press Gazette or at Gannett, Wisconsin, but there is a Packer story in the paper every single day. I swear to God, there's got to be one in there. And that's that was true in the early editions. I, I've gone back and read papers in the Ohio cities. I, I, I haven't read a lot of the Canton papers. But Akron, Dayton, some of the early cities, the only paper that I found that covered their pro team in those early years, like Green Bay, was uh, Rock Island, Illinois. Really? And uh, so there is a great repository about the history of the Packers, just the day-to-day coverage of the, I mean, when the Packers started, they didn't have an office till 1949. They really had no employees until they hired George Strickler to take, other than Curley, to take Calhoun's place in 47. So the Press Gazette, they held their meetings at the Press Gazette. Press Gazette handled their tickets for a long period of time. Um, They ran the grid graphs where the fans would gather in the 20s before radio and they'd get the results play by play uh, uh, off a Western Union teletype from the stadium where they were playing. announce them at Turner Hall or the Elks Club yeah. or the, what's now the WBAY building. So, um, yeah, it just, uh, and you find it in detail. The, the key, though, for me was also going through the Milwaukee paper. 
Because in the Green Bay paper, you got a lot of the detail, but you got a lot of positive. Everything was positive. They were trying to keep the team alive. Yeah. In the Milwaukee papers, you'd get the controversy and the, uh, you know, some of the negative stuff to balance it and offer insight as to what actually was going on. Amazing. See? Yeah, that's kind of how it is with modern reporting for a lot of of sports is positive, positive from a lot of the the team-based stuff, but then you get the opposite side from maybe some of the more independent angles. Yeah, I think that's that's always been, I shouldn't say always, but for a good part of their history. Yeah, I would think so. You know, this book also covers a lot of the, the history of the city, you know, through the 20s and 40s because it was so intertwined in so many ways. All of the businessmen who kept this team going, realizing that it was, you know, in their best interest to have a National Football League franchise. Yeah, what kept this team alive were... The East Side businessmen, as Paul Mazzolini, who owned the service station on Broadway, Packer fan from the time they started until yeah, into yeah. the 2000s. Is Mark and, here tonight? No? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah, Mark Mass comes and, all the time And here. Paul talked about how that, and, and it's true. The 35 stock sale, um, it was almost all businesses. Cor- corporations on the east side and the businesses on the east side. Very few individuals. 1950 was the first stock sale that where they really reached out to, to, the uh, fans. to the Joe fan. And it became a true community team. And here we are, stock sale number six, going swingingly, right. right? How many How many shares? They they topped 200,000 yet? I don't, I don't know. I don't I know. know. I saw the last yeah. update I saw was well up there, uh, half more than halfway already. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the businesses obviously realized uh, it's bringing in people, it's giving the city publicity, all of those types of things. And we were, Green Bay was fortunate, the Packers fortunate, that, uh, that all what we still, people who have been here a long time, I'm a native, talk about the old money in Green Bay, and uh, that's really what kept the team alive. And... Joanne's largest wholesale grocery store in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, the paper mills weren't as supportive, maybe, as some other businesses, but uh, the Press Gazette was a big booster, and uh, it was mostly mostly Eastsiders. But the lights were involved from light storage, mm-hmm. and some of the companies are, are still in existence. Fantastic tie for sure, Cliff. In your research, what were some of the biggest influential personalities of the franchise that maybe were underreported? Everybody knows the Lombardis and the Lambos and the Stars, but what were some of the other big names that maybe don't get enough attention? There's a, not a lot of people who stayed around for a long time, but there was a guy, Cornelius Murphy, um, Neil Murphy. Uh, Manager in 1920, and if I could live through any season or cover any team that I wasn't, uh, that I never reported on, it might be the 1920 Packers, because they didn't expect Lambo and Calhoun to be involved. So Jack Dalton came in, and he he was named coach and running the team, and then Lambo joined it late. 
was the star of the first game, and apparently those two did not get along all season. So how do they get rid of A lot of controversy. But Neil Murphy, what he did, ingenious. They played in 1919 right where East High School stands today, um, the East End. And uh, no fence, no bleachers, mm. and they made a few bucks by passing the hat. So the next year, Neil Murphy realized we got to build a fence so we can charge admission. So ingeniously, he got permission to build the fence around the field at Hagemeister Park and then asked the fans to build it so he could charge them for admission, and they did. <laughs> um, and so that was pivotal. He was a local typewriter salesman. And his, uh, his son had a lot of memorabilia he saved. And I hooked up with him probably 20 years ago. He's since, since died, but just a lot of, you know, the original lease and a lot of information. Wow. Um, one of the things just talking about East and West, one of my favorite parts of the book, being a native here and catching the tail end of um, the, the battles, the East-West battles <laughs> and the fights on the bridges, uh, before and after the football games in the 50s and going all the way back to even before the Packers were born. Uh, I've always appreciated that. Um, still have some of that feeling. I mean, I'm still PO'd. They built Lambeau Field on the west side. What? Because <laughs> I'm an east sider. But, <laughs> Where um, was it going? What was, the lo- what was the primary location on the east side that <clears throat> did not get Well, they had the council was looking at? Old City Stadium and expanding. Oh, it. all right. Yeah, there was that was a brew. It was a, like a four-year fight. I, I I know that. Twelve council members on the west side, twelve council members on the east side, and they could not get anything passed. <laughs> it wasn't over money. Every other city they fought over money. In Green Bay, they fought for four years over whether that stadium was going to be built on the east side of the river or the west side of the river. And that was why it wasn't on the referendum where it was going to be located. They had to decide that after. And then, again, back to the 12-12 votes and not making any progress until other people stepped in and finally got it done. You, you mentioned you're still PO'd about that. You don't hang out on the bridge and look for fights, though, do you? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, back in the... Around the time the Packers started, uh, they'd call out the militia to hmm. patrol the sidelines. Well, you wrote the with weapons. for the hundredth anniversary of the East-West game, and I've called—I bet you—I've called 30, 35 East-West games. Still, my one of my favorite high school football games to call, even though these teams can't win a damn thing anymore. I mean, just the way that everything's going. But you—you you still get an appreciation of what that game means. Even talking to kids today, or certainly the coaches, uh, because you know that book on that that program for the hundredth game mentioned a lot of these East-West battles. What was happening if you know West would win on the East side? Look out, you weren't getting back across the river without a brawl, fires, <laughs> looting, police. Yeah, they break windows in City Hall, the police station, uh, <laughs> light bonfires. Uh, they'd haul in hay on trucks and light bonfires in the city streets. And uh, the Press Gazette often editorialized about how some, somebody's got to put a stop to this. And yet there were city leaders that said, uh, 
hey, this is east-west. What do you expect? <laughs> that all gets grandfathered in. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> so that uh, held true until they uh, found uh, agreement on the plot of land on what was then Highland Avenue with nothing but farmland pretty much yeah, from the a, western boundary on. I don't know how many... I didn't know this before I started researching. Until 1963, five, six years after... City Stadium was dedicated? After Green Bay City Stadium, before that was the name before Lambeau Field was dedicated, uh, or before it was renamed, uh, there was a farm in the parking lot. West parking yeah, lot. Yeah, there was a Long farmhouse. Ridge, Ridge, Long Ridge Road. I don't remember that, even though I went to games in 57. I've seen pictures of the farmhouse yeah. still standing, that it was like the last holdout not to move. Yeah. Not too much unlike all of the Packer property purchases in the last 20 years with some people that were a little resistant to have their house built at exorbitant, house sold at exorbitant prices. But anyway, uh, so yeah, they got it done uh, and uh, moved into uh, what was then City Stadium, <laughs> Lambeau Field. Uh, and one other guy, I think instrumental, I want to touch on this too, more modern day that we both have an appreciation for. We've known him for a long time. John Underwood is a guy that realized the modern economics were going to sink this franchise if something wasn't done. Uh, yeah, I think he was uh, he was the first one to realize that as charming as Lambeau was, yeah. Lambeau Field was, uh, it was becoming economically obsolete. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, they needed to do something with the stadium. Uh, and it was Bob Harlan's foresight in that case that got it done uh, or you'd be talking I think about a dying franchise if it hadn't moved already to uh, yeah to the Milwaukee area and talk about a you know fight just to find a site for the stadium the fight to renovate that stadium was brutal yeah it was really brutal we're going to take a break when we come back more with Cliff Crystal Packer team historian the great historian sports are subject tonight we'll be back right after this welcome back to the fifth quarter Live from the Narrow Bridge Brew House, here once again, Mark Daniels and Matt Z. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are having some fun with Cliff Crystal talking about his uh, book now on sale, The Greatest Story in Sports, covering the Packers' first 100 years. Uh, and uh, oh, there's so many things to talk about. We've covered a lot of ground. But, uh, Cliff, how in the hell did they wind up with Lombardi here? Uh, Tom Olenicek. Allowed me to look at his dad's papers. Dominic, that, of course, longtime Packer yeah, his president. His dad was president at the time, oversaw the uh, search, and he allowed me to look at his personal paper, handwritten papers nice. on the, the entire search, and uh, including his spiel to Forrest Evashevsky, who was the coach at Iowa, when he offered him the job before they offered it to Lombardi. And Evashevsky turned it down. He'd been at Iowa for a long time there already. Yeah, not a long time, but, but he was been. He had turned a program that had never done much into a just a powerhouse. I mean, I remember the, watching the. I think it was a '58 Rose Bowl when they just crushed California. Bob Jeter was on that. Team. All right. But uh, yeah, there was some fascinating stuff and stuff in there, and also one of the benefits I've got from. Becoming Packers historian is we still have our executive committee, 
Board of Directors and Shareholders minutes going back to the 1920s. Wow. So a lot of things where I wasn't certain based on coverage in the papers and, and what people told me, I could often verify by looking at the minutes. And the same with the, uh, we have the ticket, our ticket office have all the ticket sales going back to the uh, late 20s uh, and information there. For example, when I talk about how the Packers just did not draw that well, they, they drew on the road but not at home, uh, nine, around 1940, they still were not selling a thousand season tickets. And uh, the NFL at a league meeting in those minutes discussed turning the Packers into a traveling team where they would play all their games on the road. And that was seriously considered because they were such still a dominant team. They'd won the title in 39. Yeah. But, and then that championship in Milwaukee was a fiasco. State Fair Park at State Fair Park, and so there was a lot of talk at that point in time. Let's let's. How did that ever? How did they ever allow that to happen? I mean, Green Bay didn't have a a playoff game here till '61. Yeah, they had. Well, City Stadium sat 25,000 people, and that was there was no TV money, so the player gate came from attendance, and they just didn't have. What was City Stadium's capacity? 25. Okay. And State Fair Park wasn't much bigger, but they could expand it to 32. The problem was they put in some temporary seats that weren't facing the field. <laughs> what? And also were obstructing other fans. That sounds like Super Bowl 45 when that section collapsed and there were a bunch of Packer fans that couldn't get into the game. They so, put in seats that didn't face the yes. field? And, so, and, and where people could stand and obstruct the views of people behind them. And so fans started throwing whiskey bottles. Yeah. At the other fans. I would have too. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy there. And they also built a temporary press box. And there were like 30 mile per hour winds, and the New York writers were those the right writers in New York who had always been supportive of the Packers, <laughs> got a lot of mileage out of them. Said, hey, "Now it's time we got to." Green Bay just isn't big league. Uh, the need, league, need, league, the league needs to get rid of it, and I think a lot of it had hmm. to do with the fact they were swaying in the wind for <laughs> four, right. four quarters. On, Probably got hit with a whiskey bottle in the process. <laughs> And that's why, and, and we're getting tight on time, and we could do this. I, I wish we had a four-hour show tonight. I know you don't want it, but I, I just love these and, you know, our conversations about this. But, again, all of these little things that have happened to this tiny little town in a mega-billion-dollar major market right. industry survived. Oh, yeah. That's why you yeah, titled they, the book as you did. And there's, I like the Rigney Dwyer story, 1920. Starting in for two years, Thanksgiving, he's working for the Milwaukee Road, his regular job, gets run over by a rail, uh, rail car at three in the morning, loses an arm and a leg, um, and survives. They play a benefit game for him. They, uh, they raise close to what would be $50,000 wow. today and take a check to him in the hospital. Uh, the early 20s, Packers didn't have blankets. Uh, visiting teams had come to Green Bay. The players had blankets. They were going to go out east and play in some cold, colder climates in November. 
the women's club in Green Bay made blankets for the sewed blankets and made blankets for the for the players so they could stay warm on the sidelines. Uh, so many stories like that that uh, St. Mary's Catholic Church in 27 started holding mass before the Packer Bear game in Chicago at 5:30 so people could get to the railroad depots and still get catch a train and get to the game in Chicago. Wow. It's amazing. And then and then the what uh, just one one of my favorite <laughs> stories is member of the Lumberjack band. Yeah. On uh, on that first trip in 1921 to Chicago. They drank all night on the train. They left on a midnight train, drank all night, got to Chicago, marked through the loop going out to the uh, going out to Cubs Park now Wrigley Field and one of the tuba players got drunk and started asking all the policemen in Chicago where Shauna was. <laughs> I mean, that could happen today. <laughs> Funny story. I've, Packers closed a season or a Christmas weekend game in Tampa, and I flew to Milwaukee to get back to Green Bay. Blizzard snowstorm, and my car breaks down, and it's two guys from Shano. That gave me a ride back to Green Bay. Yeah, it's amazing. Crazy stuff. Cliff, was the tuba player one of them? I don't know. Maybe it no, was a descendant of the tuba that player. That would have been a perfect way to wrap up no that No kidding. Story. Yeah, fantastic story. Just one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Uh, best of luck with the success of this book, Cliff. I know it's been a passion of yours, and I know, I, and I know how you are. I know how meticulous, detailed perfectionist you may be, uh, but uh, it will show in the work, and... and I hope everyone gets a chance to look it over and, and see what they think. Fantastic thank, job. Thank you, and thank you to those of you out here. Yeah, thank awesome. you, Cliff. Yeah.